The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, I direct your attention to John chapter 14. And we're going to pray that the heat is from the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what this text is about. Have you ever had to say goodbye to a loved one for an extended period of time? Or maybe you didn't know if you'd ever see that loved one again. Or maybe you sat at a friend's deathbed and you had to say goodbye. I think about the pilgrims who came to this country, you know, in the 17th century when they said goodbye to their families at the docks, it was a goodbye for forever until they would come together again on the other side. I think about the missionaries. I was thinking about Adoniram Judson and his wife Nancy. They left to go to Burma in 1812. And when they said goodbye on the docks, I think their families assumed it would be the last time. And for Nancy, uh, Adoniram's wife, it would be. She would never see uh, her parents and family again. So when you face a goodbye like that, that's, that's a difficult thing to deal with. That's hard to cope with. And Jesus has told the disciples in John chapter 13, he, he said that he will be betrayed by Judas, that Peter will deny him, and that he is going away. And I think the disciples, you know, Jesus had told them again and again that he was going to the cross, that he was going to die, and I think they thought it was some sort of metaphor. They, they assumed it was a, an allegory of sorts, that, that at the end of the day, he would establish his kingdom, and they would be with him forever. That's what they thought. And now it's sinking in, oh, he, he wasn't fooling around. He really is leaving us. And this moment has simply overwhelmed them, and they are distraught. They're upset, and, and they're thinking about the reality of what life will be like without the person of Christ with them. And this is a reality that we have to face as well. Has anybody ever seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ face to face? Nobody in this room has ever seen the risen Lord so how do, we, how do we deal with the distance? How do we cope with that? Well, Jesus gives important comforts to the disciples and I believe to us in how to deal with the fact that our Lord now is in heaven. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. That verb, be troubled, is the Greek word terasso. It's a passive verb. It means it's something that happens to you. It's not something that you do. It's something that 
happens. It's something that occurs to you. And the reality is that sometimes things shake you. They rattle you. They stir your soul. They disturb your heart. You get the phone call of a tragedy, or you hear that a loved one has died, or you get the email that you failed the test. Whatever it is, things happen that are unexpected, and they shake us. Jesus used this word when he came into Jerusalem right after the triumphal entry. He's thinking about the cross, and he says, my soul is troubled in terms of going to pay the sin penalty for our sins. But like any caring father for his children, Jesus does not want his disciples' hearts to be troubled. And so he gives them two imperatives. Look what he says back at verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, look, you're gonna have to trust me. You're gonna have to trust God. You're going to have to rely on my character. Psalm 145, 13, jot that verse down. says, the Lord, Yahweh, is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So when you're facing a challenge, when you're in the dark, God often makes you resign to the reality of his character. He doesn't let you see the outcome. You have to rely on God. Once I was watching this film by Christopher Nolan called Interstellar. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen that. But basically the, the theme of the movie is that the earth is no longer uh, habitable because there's great famines that have come, come upon the earth. And so mankind is going to have to basically find a new destination to live. And so the main character is this uh, guy played by Matthew McConaughey named Cooper. And he has two kids, uh, a son and a daughter. And he has to, as an astronaut, he has to go on a mission to find the new place where mankind will live. So he says goodbye to his kids. He gets on a rocket ship and he goes out into the deep space. And what happens in the mission, and this is just complete spoiler alert, all right? But what, but what happens on the mission is he goes to, to various planets and he goes by several black holes where time passes much more quickly there than it does on earth, but yet he doesn't age. And at the very end of the movie, he somehow basically encounters his daughter in, a, in the new place where mankind lives, and his daughter is an old lady. And he's still basically the same age. And she is on her deathbed surrounded by her family, and he comes in, and he meets her, and she says, you know, people always said that you would never come back, but I never believed that. I always knew you would come back. And he said, how did you know? And she said, because my daddy told me. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you are going to have to trust my character that I am in control, that I am sovereign, and that I have a plan. Jot down this Psalm 
Psalm 131, verse 2. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. A weaned child comes to the point where they no longer come to their mother for food. They no longer come to their mother for nourishment. The weaned child comes to the mother simply in contentment to be in the mother's presence. And the psalmist is saying, like a weaned child, I am now content simply to rest on God. And that's where we have to be in all of life's difficulties. Christ is up there, but we have to trust him. We have to trust his character. The psalmist says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and they staff, they comfort me. So we have to trust in his character. And in so doing, our Lord gives the disciples three comforts to think about regarding their life without Christ. So right next in the margin to verse 2, comfort for their future. Our Lord gives them a comfort for their future. Look at verse 2. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus is leaving to prepare a dwelling place for the disciples. And that word room has been translated various ways through the centuries. The old King James translated as what? You remember? Mansions. Have you ever heard that? In my Father's house are many mansions. The, the word really means a station of refreshment on a journey. But the important aspect of the room or the place that the Lord is preparing is that it is in the Father's house. That's the important thing. The Father's house represents heaven. The eternal dwelling place of the Christian is in heaven with the Father. That is the most important thing about heaven. It's the beatific vision. It's to be with God. Psalm 84.10 says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So Jesus, look back at verse two, says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Apparently, Jesus had mentioned at other times that he was going to prepare a place for the disciples, and he says, it's because I'm leaving that I've told you that, that I must go and prepare this place. Now, when I was a little boy and heard these verses, what I thought about is that Jesus right now is up in heaven, and he's sort of like a stonemason or a builder. You know, he's, he's building these homes for us. You know, he's gone, and he's, he's right now, he's working, he's preparing all the eternal homes of the Christians, and then when he's done, that's when he's going to come back. That's what I used to think. But that's not what Jesus means when he says that he's going to prepare a place for us. Jesus prepares the place for us simply by going there. It's the fact that there is a man in heaven that heaven is prepared for us. And that's why it is so important for the Christian faith that Jesus, after the resurrection, ascended into heaven. Have you ever asked that? Why did he leave? 
You know, why couldn't he just stay here in a resurrected body and teach us forever, hold crusades, teach conferences, direct the churches? You know, why couldn't he have done that? Well, if he did, we would never know that Christianity was indeed true. We would not know that heaven is the final destination unless flesh and blood had inherited the pearly gates. And of course, the way that Jesus prepared this place is through his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's his work. That's how he goes on ahead of us. I read a commentator this week named Westcott. He said, quote, Christ, by his death and resurrection, opened heaven, and by the elevation of his humanity, thus made ready a place for men, end quote. So the logic of this statement goes to verse 3, or leads to verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, if I ascend into heaven and pave this way, I will come again, and that's certainly a a reference to his second coming, when he comes again in bodily form. Of course, he comes in in the spirit, he comes in judgment, he's with us now, but this is a reference to the second advent when he comes again. And he says, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And that's a reference to heaven, that, that you will be with me forever in heaven. I don't know if you've ever done uh, a, basically a team building exercise. We, we used to do these in the Marine Corps where there would be a tall tower and you would have to get your team from the bottom of the tower to the very top. And really the only way that you could do this and succeed is because there would be different platforms going up the tower and each platform might be eight or nine feet apart. The only way to do it is to hoist one person up onto the next platform, and then that person would reach down and pull the other ones up all the way to the top of the tower. Well, what Jesus has done by going into heaven is he scaled an unscalable platform by man. An unscalable platform. Uh, You cannot make it into heaven even if you tried by being a good person, by obeying the law, by doing the the right rituals. Jesus has gone all the way into heaven. And because he's there, his work is to reach down and bring us up to where he is. That's why, and jot down this verse, this is really fascinating to think about. Do you remember Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament where he sees a ladder in the wilderness with angels coming up and down all the way into heaven? In John 1.51, Jesus says this, Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the ladder. I go into heaven and I provide the means of bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And of course, that's why he is coming again to take us to where he is. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, wonderful words. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so we will always be with the Lord. So that's what Jesus is referencing when he returns and we are forever with him in bodily form. Now look at verse four. Jesus says to the disciples, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, in one sense, the disciples have no clue about the way to where he's going because they're just figuring out that he's leaving, right? They're, they're still coping. But in another sense, they know exactly the way because who's the way? He's the way. So Jesus is saying, you know the way, even though they're like, well, what's the way? Jesus is saying, you know, you know the way. But they're thinking, we don't know the way. But he's explained this how many times, as we've seen this in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 6, 35, just to give you a few cross-references. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has explained to them again and again and again and again that he is the way. But yet, they don't grasp this. And have you ever been in that situation? Maybe you're in a big college auditorium. I remember at, at the basic school, there'd be like 300 lieutenants doing a, a class. And you don't want to be that guy who raises your hand and asks the dumb question. Have you ever been there? But your curiosity just gets the better of you, and you just said, no, I'm just going to throw it out there. That's kind of what Thomas does. Thomas, verse 5, says to the Lord, Lord, we, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And, and what the disciples want to know here, and, and it's probably a similar thing that we want to know, is we want to know every single detail of how it works. Tell me, how is it going to work? Tell me the details. What is heaven like? I want to know. And how does it work that you get us to heaven? Tell me. And, and one of the things uh, about Christianity is you must have faith. Faith is what, the writer of Hebrews says, the assurance of things hoped for, of things not seen. You must have faith in Christ and leave the details to him. You must go step by step by step from one challenge to the next, keeping your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith and trust him with the way. And that's essentially what Jesus responds with to Thomas. And this verse might be one of, next to John 3, 16, the most famous of Christian verses. This verse is a profound verse. This is this verse is a preacher's playground. Uh, it really is. It's remarkable to think about. It's a nursing home verse, all right? One of those verses that you can just meditate as you're, you know, sitting there eating your, eating your food, surrounded by the other old people at the nursing home. This, 
this is one of those verses that you can take to the bank, all right? John 14, 6. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus answers Thomas's question about all the details. He wants all the specifics. He says, look, I am the hodas. I am the way. I am the passageway. I am the stargate. I am the ladder. I am the connection between this world and the next. And notice that word, the, the article. It's very important. He's not a way. He's the way. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19, he says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus Christ is the only sin sacrifice that has ever been made that has appeased a holy God. No other religion has a substitutionary atonement except for Christianity. Whenever I talk to Muslims or Hindus or whoever, I always ask this question. Okay, so you're trying to be a good person? Yeah. Trying to obey the five pillars? Yeah. What about your sin? What about your sin? Oh, well, God will just forgive it. Then God's unjust. You must have an atonement to deal with the reality of sin. And that's what Christ did. He went into the eternal, heavenly tabernacle and by his blood made atonement for sin. And that is why he is the only way. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Notice there's only one broad road. There's many religions Many philosophies, many ideologies, many hedonisms, but there's only one broad road, and they're all on it. They're all on it. And there's only one narrow road, one narrow way, and it is Christ. It doesn't matter whether you believe that or not, it's the truth. I saw... Rosalind Carter's funeral, Garth Brooks and Tricia Yearwood stood up and played at her funeral. I can't believe this. Uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine that there's no heaven, no hell, no religion, no countries. I mean, it's just complete foolishness. Solomon said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Jesus is the way. And that's why it's so important that we tell people about him. He's the only way. So unless they come to God through the way, there's no hope. And by the way, when you find the way, that's where you find satisfaction of the soul 
when you're on the broad road, you keep trying A and B and C and D, and you keep finding that you're dissatisfied. And you go from one dissatisfaction to the next. But on the narrow way, yes, it's hard, sure. But from his fullness is grace upon grace. He is the way. And then in really a way of explaining this reality, he says that he's the aletheia, he's the truth, he's the essence of truth, the bedrock of truth. He's, by, by the truth, he means the truth that grounds all other truths. Paul said in Colossians 1.16, jot down these verses. These are just deep, profound verses. He says, for by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And this phrase has always struck me as mind-blowing. And in him, all things hold together. That without Christ, this world simply dissolves into pure derangement, utter incoherence. There is absolute truth. There is. Have you ever, uh, back when postmodernism was so hip 10, 15 years ago, you'd, you'd come across people and they'd say, there is no absolute truth. Anybody ever tell you this? And then you just look at them and say, well, isn't that a truth claim that you're making? That there is no absolute truth? That you're asserting that, that it's truth, that there's no absolute truth? Or there's no absolute morality? Have you ever heard this? That your morals are your morals and my morals are my morals, so let's just decide to get along? That ethics is simply from a standpoint? You know what you should do when somebody tells you that? Is steal their wallet. See how they feel about ethics then. It's a joke. <laughs> but here's the point. If you, if you get down, you know, why, why do the laws of physics work? Why, does, why is there a baseline of truth? It's because there's a fundamental bedrock of truth in a person that created everything, that holds all things together. I heard Tommy Nelson describe it as an enchanted worldview. It's a worldview that says that underneath everything is God and the Lord Jesus Christ by whom he created all things. And when you understand that, when you understand that one thing, what I just said, then you can start to build truth on that because that is the most foundational principle of truth. And the world begins to make sense. It won't make sense if you get it wrong. You'll never be able to get down into ultimate reality if you don't have the Christian worldview. Paul says, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus says, if you get this, if you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. Have you experienced that? To me, that's one of the best things about the Christian life. Man, I can watch the news, I can read the tabloids, and I know who's in control. It's Christ. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the essence of eternal 
life. He is the author of all life. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And of course, you know what John said in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have, present tense, eternal life. Only in Christ do you have eternal life. And as John said in John 3.16, that begins as a present reality. Eternal life is not something that you just experience in the future. Eternal life is something that you begin to experience now in terms of your relationship with God that you find life in Christianity. If your Christianity is just something that's in your head, but not something that gives you profound meaning in a relationship, then it's not real Christianity. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is communing with him. So this relationship begins now. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That doesn't mean that you are richer than everybody else. It doesn't mean that you drive the nicest car. None of those things really make you happy. The abundant life is the life of communion with Christ. And you have this life. You have this life now in Christ if you're a Christian. Okay, look back at verse six, second part of verse six. Jesus makes this ultimate truth claim. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He negates all other religions and so-called paths to God. True religion, true spirituality is found simply in a person. It is Christ. And the only way to God, he says, is through him. And in the Roman world, where you had a pantheon of gods, and in the Greek world, you remember when Paul was in Athens, and he saw a statue, and he said, I saw the statue to an unknown God. Let's just cover our basis, you know? We don't know which one's the real thing. In that world, where they worshiped just this litany of pagan deities, Jesus is saying, I am the only way. And in today's world, there's so many claims of being spiritual, so many claims of being a religious person. Yes, I'm a religious person. I do, you know, transcendental meditation. I, I, uh, I, I go to mass or whatever it is. There's only one real litmus test of true spirituality, and that is, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? That's it. If you're a spiritual person, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says, for there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Christ that you can go to the Father. Something so important to remember, know, and understand. Especially this Christmas. This is true spirituality. If you don't get this right, your Christianity is nothing. It's a false Christianity. True Christianity is coming to Christ, believing in him, repenting of your sins, and surrendering your life to him. Having that relationship with him. And then you can know, you can know 
that that mansion that he's preparing in heaven is for you. It's for you. So that's the comfort for their future. Now, next to verse 7, right in the margin of your Bible, comfort for their faith. Comfort for their faith. They need to know and understand what, this, what these past three years have been about. You know, was it just all pointless and meaningless? What was the whole point of following you these past three years? What's the, now you're leaving and make it make sense. Here's Jesus helping it make sense for them. And this is just one of the startling secrets of religion in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Christianity teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each of the persons is God, and yet each of the persons is unique. What Jesus is saying here is that in the incarnation, the Son, God the Son, perfectly revealed the character of God the Father. So much so that if you can grasp the character of God the Son, then you can know and understand the character of God the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he's saying. And, and now you can know this secret that the past three years, as you've watched my character, as you've heard me teach, as you've seen the miracles, you've seen God, the Father. I've revealed him to you. That's the secret. And Philip, this time, he volunteers to ask the question. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He says, give us that Mount Sinai experience just do an unveiling, and then we'll believe you. That's, that's what he's asking for. Just give us a revelation of the Father's glory, and we'll know it's authentic. And to Philip, Jesus gives a reproof, a rebuke. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me Philip, you still don't get it after three years? And he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you now say, show us the Father? You're not getting this connection that's so important, that Christ is the revelation of God the Father. Then he says, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, our relationship is so close in the Godhead that my works are the Father's works, my words are the Father's words. He says next, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In other words, my message is the message of the Father. The miracles are the miracles that the Father told me to work. The, the divine plan of redemption is a Trinitarian plan that, that I am carrying out on behalf of the Father. In verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In other words, trust me. You're going to have to trust me here. 
or else. He says your other alternative is to simply look back at the miracles and, and think about the great works that I've done because they give testimony of this reality that I represent the Father. Now, why is this a comfort for the disciples' faith? Why is this a comfort for our faith? That Jesus Christ is the revelation of God the Father. How is this comforting to us here in the 21st century? Here's why it's a comfort. If we didn't have the person of Christ, what you would know about God is really what you could observe in nature. Does, ne- does nature testify to the reality of God? Yes, it does. You go outside at night, you look up at the stars, uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Nature testifies to the reality of a creator, does it not? And that's the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. You see the design in a spider's web, and it just blows you away. But here's what nature doesn't tell you. Nature doesn't tell you about God's grace and his mercy and his love. To see that, you got to go to the cross. You got to go to Christ. You have to see his person and see God's love for you, his mercy, his grace, his kindness. All of that is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we go to the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when you're reading the apostles talking about the person of Christ in the epistles, we're seeing the true reality of who God is. We're, we're apprehending the love of God. That's Paul's prayer, is that we would be able to comprehend the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, the height, the width, the depth. And you get that by going to Christ because he is the revelation of the Father. So that's the second comfort he gives. And the third and final one is that begins in verse 12, right next to verse 12 in the margin. Comfort for their fruitfulness. Remember, these men have left the, their occupations as fishermen and tax collectors and and all sorts of things to follow Jesus, and they have given their lives to advance this ministry that he's called them to, to be disciples and and the future apostles of the church. And now this question is lingering in their mind, you know, I thought I was going to be doing this with you. I thought we would always have be following you. And now you're leaving? What does this mean for our ministry? And Jesus says in verse 12, amen, amen. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What Jesus means by this is that when he goes to the Father, he is going to advance the mission of the church through the disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is going to send his Spirit And rather than him just being in a singular location, he's going to advance the mission through the Holy Spirit across the world. What this does not mean is that we should expect to do greater miracles than Jesus. 
You ever hear that? You know, people trying to raise, you know, a dead boy at a funeral or something. I can do greater works than Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. Nobody has calmed a storm as far as I'm concerned. Nobody has walked on water. Yes, Peter prayed and and God raised someone from the dead, but that was a few and far between instance. The miracles of Christ are simply unparalleled. But the greater works you see in the scope of the mission of the church, that Christ's ministry was isolated to Judea, to Galilee and Jerusalem. And what happened at Pentecost? The gospel begins to go forth to the world. And it is going forth to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Since Pentecost, the gospel has been going forth. Remember, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. He's been building his church. So he's saying, you're actually going to be more fruitful in the aftermath of me going away than you ever were during this period where you were being trained by me personally. And with the apostles' lives, you see this, that Peter ministered in Jerusalem and then became the pastor in Rome, that Andrew went to the Greeks, that John ministered throughout the Greek and Roman world and eventually was exiled to Patmos, that Thomas went east. Many think that he went all the way to India. Matthew went to North Africa. They went out across the globe, and the gospel went forth. And that's what we're seeing today. Christ is building his church. That's why Christianity is so prevalent all over the world, is that the gospel keeps going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what a joy and honor it is to be a part of that. But it only happens because he's there. And you know what? He's praying. And it's by his power that the church advances. We don't do ministry in our own strength. It's always the power of Christ. Him advancing the church. And that's why he says, look at verse 13. He says, remember this. Remember this. The fruitfulness comes by my power. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, asking something in Jesus' name, uh, just two things about this. One, implied in this statement is this reality that the gap between heaven and earth is bridged through prayer. That even though Jesus is away from us, you can still speak to him that you can still approach him, that you can still commune with him. And he says, but if you're going to ask for me to advance the mission, you must ask in my name. And that does not mean just saying in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. The name embodies who he is. So he's saying, you pray in accordance with my character. And what is the chief motivation of Christ in his ministry. What's the chief motivation, the highest motivation? The glory of God. And look what he says. 
This is the explanation. He says, if you pray in my name, if you're genuinely asking the highest thing, that my name would be glorified in accordance with my character, I will do this, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, in accordance with my character, for my glory, he says, I will do it. So let me ask you a question. Point of application. Are your prayers for the advancement of the kingdom audacious enough? Do you really believe this? That if you ask in accordance with the character of Christ, that he will do this. Do you believe that? One thing I repeat to myself every morning as I'm coming up here, Sunday morning, as I'm coming up here into this pulpit, is a quote from Spurgeon, very simple. He said, seek the Spirit, expect the Spirit. In other words, don't just pray. Say, God, I hope you do it. It's kind of like that Bon Jovi song, Living on a Prayer, right? You know, it's just... I throw it up there. We'll see what happens. No. What does he say? He says, if you ask in my name, I will do it. So if you're asking truly in accordance with the character of Christ, and you're saying, this is, I'm asking in accordance with your glory, not my will, but your will be done. Pray with expectancy that Christ will do it. And I think one of the reasons why we're not seeing revival and the church advance and the gospel go forth is we're not expecting anything. The culture's too evil. People's hearts are too hard. Raleigh's too liberal. We're not expecting the gospel to do the work that Christ promised it to work. But it begins with prayer and asking him and expecting him to do the work of the ministry. And that's why tonight we are having a prayer meeting. We're having a prayer meeting. And it's not just to, to, to pray for people's illnesses, although those are important. We are praying and beseeching God to do the work of ministry. And we're asking in Christ's name, and, in, and we're asking in expectancy that he will do it. So let me ask you again, are your prayers expectant? Don't just pray for your kids to find a godly spouse. Expect it for God's glory. You plead with God. Say, God, would for your glory you do this and bring honor to your name. Pray, seek him, and expect him for his honor and his glory. Isn't that comforting? Christ is there, but he has called us to believe in him, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe. Lord, we do believe, and we look to you, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. We don't know all the answers, but we know you do. And we know that you are a sovereign Christ, that you are in control, that you rule, that you reign, 
that you govern, that nothing happens by accident, that you are over the churches, that you are over the nations, that you are over what is happening in Israel and Ukraine, that you are a sovereign Lord. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would do a mighty work in and through us. And we pray, Lord, expectant, with expectancy. Lord, we want to see your name honored and glorified. And so, Lord, would you do the work in us through your word? And may, you, may we see your word go out with power and authority. And we ask all this in Christ glorified name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.